Well, good morning, everyone. We are glad that you are here to worship our great God and to open up his word uh, with us. We will be in John chapter 13, the tail end of it, uh, looking at verses 31 to 38. So go ahead and open up your Bibles to that. Uh, If you haven't been coming to to, uh, CBC for very long, we do uh, provide scripture journals for every book of the Bible that we go through, uh, which is just the text on one side and blank page to take notes on the other. And there's some in the back uh, that you can feel free to grab and use to follow along uh, if you so desire to do that. Uh, but we are uh, in the upper room. This section of John's Gospel is called the Upper Room Discourse. Uh, and it's these very intimate, intense moments between Jesus and his disciples in the upper room of this house uh, leading up the, the days right before uh, he's going to be crucified. So uh, as we enter the story, uh, Judas has just left that evening uh, to go and do his betraying. Um, and so in short order, Jesus will be arrested. And so we enter into this story about uh, maybe halfway through um, this evening between Jesus and his disciples. And we pick up at verse 31, just as Judas has left. Uh, So if you join me, let's read verses 31 to 38 uh, together. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now also I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another." By this, all people will know that you, are in, that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, these words, even at the beginning, when Jesus addresses the disciples in that most precious way as his sweet little children, Father, we recognize that we are indeed your little children. We are in need of you as our Savior. We are in need of you to direct and form us. And so, Father, we come before you asking that you would be at work to shape our minds and our hearts this morning, that as we open up your word and we hear what you have to say to us, to teach us, to preach to us, the command that you give us regarding our conduct with one another, Lord, we know that we are little children. And in in being little children, we are prone to wander, prone to rebel against you, Lord. We need your presence in our life to help shape us and guide us. And so we pray this morning that that would be indeed happening. We trust that the Spirit will be at work, allowing us to hear and understand, to comprehend and to apply that which you are commanding and teaching us. Lord, we thank you for the precious gift of Scripture, that we can open your word, that we can study it, that we can know you more fully. We thank you 
for all that you've done through the person of Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is glorified, that he is high and lifted up and worthy of our praise. It is through Jesus that we approach you this morning and ask that you would be at work in our hearts and our minds in the midst of your congregation. In your name we pray. Amen. So two main questions I want us to answer this morning. First, where is Jesus going that the disciples cannot go? He said this multiple times. He says, I told the Jews this. They were a little confused, and now he's turning and saying, just as I told the Jews, I am telling you where I, where I am going, you cannot go. So we must answer this question, where is Jesus going that they cannot go? And the second question, which we'll spend the uh, majority of our time in, how can we f- fulfill the command to love one another? How can we fulfill the command to love one another? Well, we begin to see the answers to these questions emerge as we examine the text very closely. What is happening here? In the very beginning, verses 31 and 32, we have a word that appears five times. Must be important. John keeps using this word, and indeed I had to read this verse multiple times out loud because it's really hard to keep reading it with how much he says glorified. That's a hard word for me to say for whatever reason. Uh, And we see this word over and over and over. And so as we read, we say, okay, maybe everything here, these questions all have to do with this word glorified, how we love one another and even where Jesus is going. So what does this mean that he uses this? Well, it means this whole section hinges on this word glorified. The answer to these two main questions, where Jesus is going and how we love one another, are going to have to do with something with the glorification of Jesus. And indeed, there's a simple structure that we begin to see as we look at a pattern here in the text. Uh, Verses 31 to 32 is a statement. Lord glorified. I'll read it aloud again just so we can see with some emphasis here. When he had gone out, again, that's Judas, Jesus turns to everybody else that's there and says, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. And then what follows from 33 to 38 is a pattern. Verse 33, this idea of you will seek me and you cannot find me because I'm going somewhere that you can't go. Then this new command in verses 34 and 35. uh, And then we have again this idea of where you're going, I cannot go in verse 36. uh, a, A similar pattern there. And then finally, in answer to the commandment, how do we love one another? Uh, Jesus and Peter's discussion about laying lives down. This is going to be the structure that we see that helps us understand glorification. And indeed, we see this as a larger pattern in chapter 13 in general. We have a large section, if you remember last week, how does chapter 13 open? It opens with Jesus washing the feet of the disciples, this idea of serving or loving one another. Then we have the the, uh, revelation of Judas the betrayer. Then we have this middle, these two verses, 31 and 32. Now is the Son of Man glorified, glorified, glorified. And then we have our concluding section, love one another, and a second betrayer is revealed. All of this is hinging on this idea of the glorification or Jesus being glorified. So what does this mean? How do we understand this text if this word glorify or glorified is so important? Well, first we have to understand what this word even means. We use it uh, infrequently in our day and age. Well, to glorify is to cause splendor greatness or to uh, or to clothed in splendor. So to glorify something is to make it beautiful, make it known as great. But the word glorify also has a secondary meaning that goes along with this, and it's a sense of revealing. 
And so to glorify something is, isn't just to make it great, it's also to reveal it in its most full sense. When someone is glorified, they are not just revealed as great or clothed in greatness or known as great, they are shown to be who they are more fully when they are glorified. And so this idea that Jesus is glorified means he is more fully known and he is more fully revealed to be the great God that he is. And indeed, we might be able to read it uh, something along the lines of this. This is my very rough translation to help us. Uh, but when Jesus, we uh, read this, 31 to 32, again, not your Bibles, this is my translation. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man known as great, and God is known as great in him. If God is made known as great in him, God will also make him known as great in himself and make him known as great at once. All of this glorification is tied to this idea that Jesus is going to be known as great. And when does it happen? When Judas goes out. What does this mean? How is Jesus going to be known as great? Well, the great betrayer has left to do his betraying, and Jesus sits there with his remaining disciples. He is now going to be glorified because this man is going to be betrayed, which means the full weight and fullness of his mission of heading to the cross of dying for sinners is going to be revealed. Jesus is going to be glorified. He is going to be known as the greatest version of who he is. He's going to be known as the greatest fulfillment of who he is, the greatest display of his character and his actions when he heads to that cross and is lifted high. His mission will be finally seen and understood by the disciples. Being the one who is God and knows all these things, I believe Jesus here is relaying his final encouragement to his followers. When he says all this glorification talk, God is glorified, he's glorified instantly, all of these things in 31 and 32, he's trying to remind them that what is about to happen has always been God's plan. That God is not out of control just because I am about to be killed. What is going to happen has always been in God's control and indeed has been God's very plan. I will be revealed, my greatness fully displayed, Jesus says, when I hang on the cross in just a few short days. I will be glorified, and the Father will simultaneously be glorified through this work on the cross in this act of redeeming his people. The commitment of God to his creation will be doubtless, for he gives up his own life. This is why I believe the angels in 1 Peter 1.12 say they long to look into the things of salvation or redemption. Right? There is a character of God that not even angels can understand because they don't get to experience redemption. And yet we as God's redeemed people, get to experience that aspect of God's character. We get to experience what it means to be redeemed, to feel the love of somebody who lays his life to call us to himself, to make us right and pure. And so with all of that in the back of our mind, we can finally begin to answer these questions. Where is he going? And as we uh, encounter in the Bible, this, this question, this answer has, I think, twofold meanings. In the immediate, where is Jesus going? Jesus is going to the cross. He is going to lay down his life so that sinners might receive forgiveness. The disciples cannot go because this is Jesus' task and job alone. The time for laying down their own lives is not yet at hand. This is Jesus' job. But in another sense, and indeed probably a more full sense, Jesus is going to be with the Father in heaven. He is going to prepare a place, but the disciples cannot yet go with him there. And so where Jesus is going 
has this present and future reality, and yet the future reality cannot happen without the first present reality being accomplished, meaning Jesus is going to the cross. Certainly there will be a time for the disciples to suffer for the sake of Christ and to suffer for one another. There will be a time also when they join the heavenly multitude and praise God continuously around the throne. But that time is not here, and Jesus plainly tells them so. Where I am going, you cannot go at this moment. And so our question to answer one, if you're taking notes, where is Jesus going? 1A, he is going to sacrificially lay down his life. Where is Jesus going? 1B, Jesus is going to live in eternal glory with the Father in heaven. And so that brings us to question number two. How do we love one another? Think about what's at stake. Jesus knows he's going to die in the most public and humiliating of ways. How will the disciples continue? How will they face certain discouragement? Well, one way is going to be by loving one another well, by understanding what it is that Jesus has done in laying down his life for them. If they emulate this, if they hold fast to one another, if they have this radical commitment and devotion in their community, they can have strength. But the problem is when we read this, love one another, it's such a generic word in our society. Right? If you're like me, you've used the word love many times this week to describe a multitude of things. Uh, hopefully you've used it to describe your spouse. I've told my wife I love her. I've told other people I love my wife. I've told my kids that I love them. In doing membership interviews, I talked about the love I have for the church. I used the word to describe a good steak I had on Friday night. Man, I love that steak. Uh, it was delicious uh, and cooked just perfectly. I used it to describe the Phoenix Suns as I sat and watched them win again and again and again. I used the word to describe my dog, my truck, camping, Pepsi, and at least 20 other things this week. We use this word love all the time. And so when we ask this question or we see this command, love one another, we might miss something if we distill it to how we commonly use the word love today, which we use the word love to simply mean I find great joy. I find great joy in my wife. I find great joy in my kids. I find great joy in the Phoenix Suns. I find great joy in steak. So many other things. But what happens when someone doesn't bring you joy anymore? Do we stop loving them? Well, in the case of the Cardinals, yes. Right, I give you that. Uh, you can no longer find joy. You can cast them aside. Right? Uh, but the reality is, when we no longer get something from people, we say things like, I fell out of love with them. I no longer love them, or I don't find love in this anymore. Or we have a job, and we just say, I don't love it. And so we quit to find something that we're more passionate about. We use this word love in such a distilled way to simply mean joy. But the problem is that's not what is at stake here. Jesus is not saying, find great joy in one another, for indeed he knows that these are people and when lots of people get together, things aren't always joyful. There's going to be friction. What this love is talking about is this fuller display of what true care or what true love looks like. Love is a type of loyalty a level of devotion, even a commitment to unreturned service. Think about the scene just before this in chapter 13. Jesus washes the disciples' feet. He humbly takes on the form of a ser servant. This is God himself, the king of kings, and yet he is willing to get on his hands and knees and scrub dirty feet. 
And we say, man, that's such a great way to, to love somebody well. But we often just forget that one of the feet that he scrubs is Judas. The man that he knows is going to betray him, who is going to cause pain to him, who is going to do this terrible thing. Jesus happily washes his feet. I'm sure he doesn't find great joy in Judas, but instead he still serves him. All of the disciples, even Judas, he serves, he loves, he sacrificially gives of himself for them. So what does it mean to love one another? I think we can distill it to this. We love one another when we sacrificially live for one another. What does it mean to sacrificially live? Well, as the Christian community, as John points out, should be defined by this giving up of your life for one another. When Jesus says, love as I have loved you, in the context of John 13, he is saying, I have loved you in this way that I'm going to now be glorified, which means I'm going to die on the cross for you. And so the way that I love you is by giving up my life, by serving you unconditionally. And so these people are called to give up their own lives for each other and indeed serve each other unconditionally. And so John says very plainly, this is how Christian community should be defined. When outsiders look into the church, they should see a collection of people who are radically committed and demonstrating this level of love, this commitment, this sacrificial living for one another. The fullest display of God's love to us is the death of Christ on the cross. And so it should not be a surprise to us that the fullest display of our love to one another is to give up our own lives, to sacrifice things that we love, to make ourselves uncomfortable for one another. That which most fully reveals Jesus will also fully reveal what it means to be a Christian, the sacrificial care that they have for one another. But poor Peter here, got a feel for that guy. He reveals how hard this is. He cannot go where Jesus is going. Despite his best intentions, he cannot lay down his life because he's simply unable to. He has the best of intentions, right? This guy just previously, don't wash my feet, wash my whole body. I'll never, I'll never deny you, Jesus. I will lay down my life. But Jesus turns at him, I'm sure, with the merciful eyes of a father and says, oh yes, you will betray me tonight. The one who I have told you, remember Peter is the one who leans over and is like, Who's going to do it, Jesus? And he's like, it's Judas. Right? Nobody else knows, just Peter. But now G Jesus looks at this man, Peter, and is like, just as Judas is going to betray me, so also you will, Peter. He is unable to live out this commitment. He can't go where Jesus is going. He can't lay down his life. Why? Because he doesn't have the promised helper. He is still a man scrapping with his own intentions, but finding himself unable to do this. It's only once we get to the book of Acts, we have the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes, Peter's life is radically changed, and he's able to lay down his life for the sake of Christ and to love the other Christians well. Indeed, this was a mark of the early church. Our early father in the second century, church father, reported that uh, many of the pagans in his day, this is Tertullian, would say, behold how these Christians love one another, how ready they are to die for each other. And this was like a very literal die sense, not like us when I'm, hey, we should give up ourselves sacrificially and die for one another. Uh, most likely none of us are literally going to be killed uh, because of our love for one another. But for the early church, that very much was a reality. And so the question then becomes to us today, if John asks us, 
and tells us this is the command of Jesus to love one another well. This is going to be the definition of what it means to be a Christian in a sense. How can we begin to live in such a way when the outside world sees us that we're defined by the love and the care that we have for each other? How would we begin to have the type of loyalty that Scripture is saturated with and display it to the outside world? Over and over from the very first pages of Scripture all the way to the book of Revelation, we see this patient faithfulness of God. He is constantly faithful and patient with his creation. They wrong him, he saves them. They wrong him, he saves them. Over and over and over again, even to the point where he sends himself to die for his people. There is this patient and unrelenting love that God gives this loyalty that he never abandons his people throughout all the pages of scripture. How powerful and tangible of a message would it be to the outside world if they looked into the church and saw this? That same type of loyalty that's patient, that's kind, that puts up with one another uh, when they see it. How do we do that? How do we live sacrificially for one another? How do we demonstrate a radical commitment to one another? Well, in the most basic sense, we have to read like Peter here and just say we can't. We can't unless we live a life of dependence on Jesus Christ. We can't unless we're empowered by the Holy Spirit. We can't fulfill God's commands on our own. We need his help. We need to be radically dependent on Jesus, going to him for everything in our life. And and simultaneously, we shouldn't expect those who are not in Christ to be able to fulfill this command either. We should not expect those who are not in Christ to be able to radically love and be loyal and demonstrate these kinds of things in their life. They will be like Peter, simply unable to do this. They cannot go there yet. And so we must first humble ourselves to a dependence on Christ if we are going to sacrificially live for one another. We should find strength in his mercy and see him for who he is, a just and merciful Savior who gave himself for his people. And in response to this, we can give ourselves then to each other. But I do want to finish with some tangible ways as well. Most of us in here long ago declared our belief and dedication to Jesus. We confessed our sins, accepted him as Savior, and pledged our lives to him. And yet, if we're honest, we struggle to fill this command. We struggle to radically be loyal to one another. We struggle to get along well. We've been in churches for years and seen fighting and bickering and whining and complaining. And we say, I don't think I'm fulfilling this. Where are some tangible places that we can start? There's many ways we can sacrificially love, but I want to give us three starting points uh, that are are preaching to me and I hope preaching to you. You can sacrificially love other Christians first by being hospitable. You can sacrificially love other Christians by disagreeing well. And you can sacrificially love each other by praying. Be hospitable. You may say, how is that sacrificial loving to be hospitable? Well, having people over your house is radical, especially in the last two years, right? Having people over your house was like you were bringing death to the neighborhood. Uh, Don't do it. Uh, So people today, even before two years ago, have been very content to be entertained rather than to entertain. What's easier, having people over your house for dinner or watching Netflix? Netflix. Honestly, what's more fun? Probably Netflix. Uh, Right? We have these same things that we say, but being hospitable is radical. It takes effort and energy on our part to open up our, hou- our houses and invite somebody to see the mess that's within. When somebody walks through our front door, they no longer see the person that we are on a Sunday morning. They start to see the person that we really are. 
The one who never does dishes or puts away laundry, who just kicks things under the couch so people don't see it, right? You know, the type, the person that ice falls out of the freezer, they just kick it under the fridge. I'm not going to pick that up. It'll melt and go away down there. I know most of you in here do that, at least the men, uh, right? And so, but being hospitable opens up people to see us, how we really that we, uh, 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 in all of our vulnerability, in our truest sense, when people come into our homes, they see the way that we treat our spouses, our kids. They see the things that are on our couches and what's in the most important things in our lives, the things that we talk about and find joy in. All of this is exposed when people come into our lives. And so there's a certain vulnerability that most people in the world would rather avoid. But we can demonstrate we love each other well by being hospitable by welcoming each other into our homes and letting each other see us for who we really are, the good and the bad. When we invite people into our homes, we give up our time, our money, a sense of freedom even. We don't hold things for ourselves, but we are glad for the intrusions to say, let you come in. See me for who I am. In a day when the outside world we don't have too much connections with because people work at home, Right? Many of us probably don't know many non-Christians other than the people that live directly around us. We don't live in lives that are heavily uh, influenced. Some of you have jobs out in the secular workplace. You might know four or five people that are on your teams that you manage or you work with. But outside of that, most of us don't have this extensive network of non-Christians. And so when we look at this and we say, how can they know us? One of the most fundamental ways is when we have people to our house, you get the neighbors who are opening up the slats in their blinds and looking out their blinds at you and like, man, somebody's over their house again. Randy must be a drug dealer, right? There's so many people in and out of that guy's house. What is going on? Uh, and indeed, when, when things happened two years ago and we had youth group at my house still and there was 40 teenagers every Monday in community group, which had another 50 people, or in my little tiny house in little Glendale and not one of my neighbors came out of their houses for six months and we had, you know, everybody on the block knew when half the cars down the block were coming to my house. Something was happening and they would ask, why are people always at your house? Well, it's our church. We get together and we hang out. Aren't you worried? No. Uh, you know, I'm with them enough that whatever happens is going to happen. In a suburban culture where it's difficult to have exposure to the outside world, our hospitality plays a big part of showing what our priority is. And if our priority is loving one another well, as John commands here, having each other in our homes is a tangible way for our neighbors and other people to say, that person cares about other people. That person is different than me. They look out the slats of their blinds. They see cars coming and going. They see the hugs on the doorstep and the affections of people who are committed to each other. Hospitality is one of the key ways, I believe, in our culture today that we can fulfill this command to love one another. But the second is more difficult. We can love sacrificially other Christians, indeed each other, by disagreeing well. What do our lives say to those who are outside the church? We are to be defined by loyalty, John says here, and a commitment to each other. But too often, Christians have been marked and defined by bickering and fighting. To the outside world, local churches are marked not of self-sacrifice, but by division. So do we encourage and unite around the grace of Christ, the fellowship that we have with one another, loving each other and loving God because of the sacrifice of Jesus? We should love to discuss Scripture but also not condemn others when they disagree with us. It's not helpful or winsome. The perfect example of this I can speak to from my own life. 
I sat down in my second semester at Phoenix Seminary probably about 10 years ago uh, in, in my first theology class. Uh, some of you may know a guy named Dr. Wayne Grudem. I had no idea who this guy was. Uh, the person next to me is Britt and I sat down and said, aren't you so excited to learn from this man? If you don't know who he is, he's one of the most famous uh, theologians of the, our century. He's written a book called Systematic Theology. That's the most well-distributed systematic theology of our generation. Uh, he is sort of a big deal. I didn't know him. And so I sat down and this student said, aren't you so excited? If I was smarter, it was about 2 a.m. or 2 p.m. I usually take a nap about 2 p.m. So I wasn't doing well. I should have said, yeah, I know. I paid for the class and registered. Of course I knew and can believe I'm here. But instead I just shrugged and was like, I guess. I don't know this guy. I don't know who he is. I don't know why we should respect him or listen to him other than he's faculty at this school that I'm paying money to go to and understand things. And so as class opened up, we sat there, and it didn't take long, maybe two weeks, for me to start to vocally disagree with him very strongly uh, on several key issues. Uh, views that made God small and man big, views that, as I look back, probably bordered on heresy at the time. Again, I was a pastor. I was in a dangerous position. But I wanted to love God well. I wanted to know as much as I could, and so I went to a school that was unlike any school I'd ever gone to. School that was going to give me diversity and help me balance and make sure everything that I learned uh, had some tension in it. And so I sat with this man, Dr. Grudem, and I would tell him things like, God changes his mind. I can prove it to you in scripture. And he would very nicely say, okay, Randy, show me. And then I would give him some anecdotal stories and he'd say, but what about this? God doesn't change his mind and quote the verse. And I'd say, no, 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 no. Right? And we'd have these back and forth discussions. But he sat there, patiently listening to my arguments, never judging or condemning me. He even affirmed that he understood why I argued for the positions that I argued for and simply encouraged me to read Scripture and see what Scripture taught. He wanted all of his students to simply see, hear, and know God through God's Word, and he encouraged me to commit to doing that. And so I did. And you know what? It was transformational. I became a much better pastor and more significantly a much better Christian to those I was around because Dr. Grudem disagreed with me well. He disagreed with me well. He could have condemned me for what I now see as wildly incorrect understandings of God and terrible theology. Right? He would have been right to say, Randy, you're a heretic. Like, you need to be careful. That's not an okay belief. But he didn't. He affirmed me as somebody who loved and was passionate about living for Jesus. He saw this in my heart, even though my theology was a little wayward at the time. He never felt the need to revisit issues with me, and as a result of my time in his class, uh, instead of becoming more entrenched in my positions, I began to see God more fully. He disagreed well with me. But the problem is, when we don't disagree well, we isolate into our corners, and Christians start hurling things at each other. Right? We, we back down, and it can become uh, along uh, political lines, it can become along theological lines, so many different things, and we start hurling things at one another rather than listening well. We become entrenched rather than in love with Jesus. We fight and look at each other rather than look to Christ. And what happens when we do this is we fail in our most basic mission to share the gospel with the nations. Because the very thing that John tells us here in chapter 13 that should be a catalyst for evangelism, people seeing the radical love and devotion that Christians have for one another in the local church is instead the very thing that drives them away. In place of sacrificial love, they see petty division. And so what do we have here? One of the ways that we can sacrificially love 
is by resisting the temptation to always prove ourselves correct. We should find great joy when we talk to other Christians, Christians in our church, Christians at our work, Christians in our neighborhood, that we have a good Savior who gave his life for us. We should rejoice that other people have found that. But if instead we have this need when we talk to people to always get in the last word, that last subtle dig at them, we don't demonstrate love. What we demonstrate is silly and foolish pride, the hidden pride of our hearts. If our discussions are always aimed at trivial theological issues, we begin to divide rather than unite under the banner of Christ. John here is reminding us we can sacrificially love one another. There is plenty that unites us. Let us focus on that. Our desire should be to be faithful to this new command Jesus gives his disciples to love one another. Let our commitment to each other be more significant than our need to show how smart or, or how knowledgeable we are about Scripture. Let us love each other well. Let us resist the temptation to try to make everybody believe and act exactly like we do. It's a foolish exercise. This is the level of commitment that we're called to have. Remember, this whole section finds itself at the center of the glorification of Jesus on the cross. How are these people going to know who Jesus is? How are they going to know who he is? How are they going to know what his love for them is? It's in the fact that he lays down his own life by being an instrument not of division but of reconciliation. That's what we are called to do as well to have this level of devotion that we're willing to give our lives for one another, to lay down the pride that we all harbor inside of us and instead seek to build each other up. And so we must ask, can the people from our day look around and say, wow, look at these Christians. They're willing to die for one another. That's the level of their loyalty. That's the depth of their unity. Is this a level of commitment and loyalty to one another? Represent your attitude to others in this room. As you look around, do you say, I would give up my life for that person. I would do whatever it takes to help that person in a time of need or to show my type of loyalty or devotion to them. Or do you see a bunch of people who you need to convince to change their minds just so they can become more like you? We can sacrificially live and love one another by disagreeing well. And finally, pray for one another. We can demonstrate the love of God. We can harbor inside of us this idea that we can love one another well by praying for one another. We should pray that our lives would be like Christ, willing to wash even Judas's feet. There are those that we will find difficult to care for, those of us that will at some point maybe even hurt each other. Nevertheless, we are called to live a life marked by radical loyalty to each other. And one of the best ways for us to develop those attitudes towards each other is to be praying for the ones that we find most difficult to be loyal to, to have radical, sacrificial love for. Prayer is one of the primary ways that we align our hearts with God. And if we want to live a life where we lay down our lives for each other, we're going to have to do it through a commitment to pray for even the people we don't like that much. Even the people that we find difficult to talk to and get along with, we should be praying for them, praying that their lives would flourish, praying that God's favor would be present in their lives, that our own hearts and attitudes towards them would be a reflection of the attitude and heart of Christ towards them, not our own. And I want to finish this morning by simply noting the parallels as well as the contrast between Judas and Peter. As chapter 13 Finishes, I told you we have right before this, the betrayal of Judas is noted. Now we have this betrayal of Peter. Both of these men had been associated with Jesus for years. 
Both had seen his signs and heard his truth. He gave both of them his love and extended his appeals. And in the final hours of Jesus' mission on earth, both men fail him miserably. They abandon him in his hour of his greatest need. Both grieve Jesus' heart and added to his pain. The failure of both of these men was spectacularly public. Both are known today around the world for the failures in these moments. One, however, was lost and the other saved. One repented, sought Christ's mercy, and went to heaven. The other, overwhelmed with remorse, turned on himself, took his own life, and went unforgiven to hell. The seeds of failure of both Peter and Judas lie in our hearts. We know what it's like to deny and betray Jesus, to fall short of fulfilling his commands. And so we can only cast ourselves on his limitless mercy, knowing that he will not cast away even one of the people who come to him, and that no one will be lost of whom the Father has given him to. We can find joy and relief in the mercy of Jesus. And so this morning, if as you examine your life, you see yourself falling short of this command, this new command to love one another in a type of radical loyalty, find hope in Peter. What enables us to fulfill this command is not our own resolve, but the power of the Holy Spirit that enables us to see and care for others the way that God does. Run to the life of sacrifice for the sake of others and find out what John tells us in just a short while in 1513. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Follow in the footsteps of Christ. Lay down your life for one another, speaking powerfully to a world that is left going. Those crazy Christians at CBC, they would die for one another. That's the type of devotion that they have. That's the loyalty that they have for one another. And so a few questions as we finish, just to help us evaluate. One, do you find hope in the full display of God's love through Christ on the cross? Do you find your life, do you, do you live your life sacrificing for others or do you run from this command? Which of the three tangible ways might you begin practicing this week? And in these tangible ways, number two, what is the message of your home? Do your neighbors or if you have kids, do your kids see you as someone committed to the well-being of other Christians by welcoming them into your home? Who is it that you should invite over in the next two weeks? And it's probably not somebody that you're thinking right now. It's probably not the first person that you're like, man, I'd love to have lunch with them or dinner with them. It's probably the person that's the opposite of that, according to this command. Now, hopefully everybody forgets that. So when everybody called, hey, you want to come over to my house for dinner? Oh, that guy hates me. Uh, we don't want that. But this is what we're called to do. How do we begin to love one another well to have hospitality? Who should we invite over in the next two weeks? Third, do your words unite or divide? How can you begin to practice disagreeing well? And finally, are you praying for other Christians? Are you praying for other people here at CBC? The ones that you find easy to care for and the ones that you find difficult. Who is it that you need to pray to see like Jesus sees? Let's pray. Father, we do ask that our hearts and our minds, indeed our very eyes, would see people as you see them. Lord, we know that the blood of Jesus, when we repent, when we have been brought into the family, when we become your little children, that you see us not marked by all of our failures, Lord, but you see us 
with the perfect righteousness of Jesus. And so we pray that we would also see fellow Christians in the same way, as your redeemed people, as the people that you love, that you sacrificially gave your own life for. Father, we want to have that heart, that level of devotion, that level of love for each other. Lord, we desire that CBC would be a place that is hospitable, that is marked by deep and heartfelt prayer for one another, that would be a place that is able to disagree well and demonstrate love and commitment to each other even when we don't agree on all of the small details. Lord, we want to be united by the blood of Jesus. We want to experience the unity. We want to fulfill this new command to love one another by laying our lives down for each other. We know that we are unable to do this. Lord, we know the hidden pride that lies in our hearts. We know the insecurity that is always creeping at the door. And so, Lord, we ask that you would give us the power, that you would give us the ability to love well, to demonstrate loyalty even in the face of Judas's. Lord, to be willing to serve even the least of these. Father, would you do that in our lives? Would you powerfully work in our hearts that we might love you and that we might love others because of the great love we have experienced from you? Lord, we thank you for the gift of our salvation through Jesus Christ. We thank you that we have been brought from death to life, that we have the newness of Jesus. Lord, that we can indeed fulfill this command because you give us the spirit to do so. Father, might we be your people. Might the outside world look in and see the kind of people you've called us to be, radically devoted, loving, hospitable, charitable, and disagreeing well. Lord, thank you for this time that we have. Thank you for your word that guides us and shapes us and transforms us. Might we grow to be more like Christ each and every day. Amen.